Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And as you're turning there, I want to read some words from Psalm 13. Psalm 13 says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? What an encouraging way to start off a sermon, right? Uh, You know, David, the man after God's own heart, was inspired to write those words. He asked four times, God, how long is it going to be till you show me some mercy, till you bail me out of this problem? Today we're looking at uh, Matthew 11 with the same type of thing, uh, where we have another hero of the faith, John the Baptist, who's asking some difficult questions. Uh, He's expressing some doubt, saying, God, how long is it going to be until you rescue me? And so you, I wanted to start off by mentioning both of those people, David, John the Baptist, before I mention this. I think probably all of us in this room, if we're honest, have faced moments like that before too, right? Where you have doubts, you have questions or struggles that you're not sure how you're supposed to get through. Is God even able to help me through this? If you're honest, you've probably asked that question. And one of the things I want us to see this morning is that it's okay for the people of God to ask hard questions, okay? We see John the Baptist doing that in our text today, Uh, and like I said, we saw David, uh, the man after God's own heart, doing it long, long ago. So this morning, our message is entitled, When Doubts Arise. Uh, Not if doubts arise, but when doubts arise, because I think if you live as a human being in the world today, you're going to go through seasons, through struggles, through things that are difficult, and those things can give rise to doubts. And so how do we respond in the midst of those doubts? I think this morning, our King, Jesus, gives us a message. And so the first thing we're going to see this morning in those first six verses of Matthew 11 is a question for the king from none other than John the Baptist. He asks this question to Jesus in these first six verses. So follow along in your Bibles uh, or on the screens as I read these verses. It says this, When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is the word of the Lord. So what we see there in this first section of this chapter is a question for the king. John the Baptist can't even come to ask the question in person because he's in prison. So he sends his followers and says, I've got a question for Jesus. I want you to ask him, are you the Christ or should we be looking for someone else? This is a very, I think, real personal Kind of human moment for John the Baptist. Sometimes you might forget that he was a human just like we are too. And uh, and he's having these doubts, basically. 
You know, uh, flipping your Bibles back over to Matthew chapter 3, I want us to see where we first ran into John the Baptist. So uh, in Matthew 3, we see John the Baptist appear on the scene. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. In other words, he was getting people ready for Jesus to arrive. Um, he's baptizing people. He's preaching this message and saying, uh, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so uh, he's, he's telling people that this promised one, Jesus, is about to arrive. And so that's what he's doing. And the last time we hear about John until now in chapter 11 is look ahead at chapter 4, verse 12. It says, now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee which is actually where he still is in this northern region of Israel. And so uh, what's happening here is John the Baptist is now in prison. He's sending his messengers to Jesus uh, to ask them questions. One other place I want us to look at, about uh, information about John is in Luke chapter 3. Uh, flip over there if you can. Luke chapter 3 verse 19. Now you remember the Christmas story, which is crazy. We're about, I think, Four weeks from today is the first Sunday of Advent. So we're going to be repeating some of these stories very soon. But one of the things in the Christmas story that you probably remember from your childhood is who was the big bad guy? It was King Herod, right? He was the, the really bad guy. Well, King Herod died. Uh, and so Jesus was able to come back and live in the land. But guess what? His sons became rulers in his place. And so look at uh, Luke three nineteen and 20. It says this at the end of the verse. It says this. All these evil things that Herod had done, he added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. Okay, so everyone knew Herod was a terrible person. His son was a terrible person. And he did all these evil things. But then the worst thing here that is mentioned in John in Luke chapter 3 is he locked up John, uh, John the Baptist. He locked up the servant, the messenger of God. And so we have to ask this morning, when we look at these verses from John, and he says, are you the one, or should we expect someone else. We have to ask, why is John doubting? Why is he doubting? Back over in Matthew 3, look at what he said about Jesus. So he had this really high view of Jesus. He knew that Jesus was following after him. And he said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not willing to carry, worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. All right, so John, when he announced Jesus was coming, said, hey, this amazing person is coming. I'm not even worthy to carry his shoes around. I'm too lowly for that. Um, and so uh, he says, but this person is going to come and bring judgment, this Messiah. So he had this high view of Jesus. So what makes him question that now? Well, again, remember, he's in prison. He's in a difficult time. Uh, one of the scholars that I read this week is Warren Wiersbe. He said this, it's not difficult to sympathize with John as he suffered in prison. He was a man of the desert, yet he was confined indoors. He was an active man with a divine mandate to preach, yet he was silenced. He had announced judgment, and yet that judgment was slow in coming. He received only partial reports of Jesus' ministry, and he could not see the total picture. So if you can imagine this guy, this, this amazing character, John the Baptist, who God raised up for one of the most important tasks on earth, is now stuck in a dark dungeon 
wasting away, can't really see, can't really hear, and he's becoming hopeless. You know, this reminds me uh, of a scene in the book Pilgrim's Progress. How many in here have read the book Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, a decent number of you. So Pilgrim's Progress is a story that was written, um, I think, in the 1500s, maybe 1600s in England. Uh, it's a fictional tale of a man named Christian who goes on a journey. Uh, and he encounters all these obstacles on his way until he finally meets Christ, uh, becomes a believer. And guess what? That's not the end of his struggles. He runs into more obstacles. One of the obstacles he runs into is this place called Doubting Castle which is owned by the giant despair. Okay, I love just the way that, that uh, the, the characters are described in here, right? Doubting castle, it's this fortress of doubt and a giant called despair. Despair and doubt seem like giants sometimes, don't they? Something you can't get past. So this picture here is of the scene in, in, uh, in Pilgrim's Progress where the giant despair grabs Christian and his friend Hope and takes them and locks them up. Uh, so here's some words from the book, actually. It says, there was a castle called Doubting Castle. The owner whereof was Giant Despair. The giant, therefore, drove them before him, and he put them into his castle, into a very dark dungeon, nasty and stinking to the spirits of these two men. Here, then, they lay from Wednesday morning till Sunday, Saturday night without one bit of bread or drop of drink or light or any to ask how they did. The book goes on to tell this whole story of how every day the giant comes in with his club and just beats them almost to death, injures them horribly. And if you think about it, that's what despair and discouragement and doubt do to us, right? They beat us up over and over again until finally Christian's despairing of life itself. He's saying, I don't think I can go on. I think this is it for me. But his friend Hope encourages him. His friend Hope helps him to wrestle through these questions. See, this morning when we talk about John the Baptist with this question, he's stuck in the, in the doubting castle, in the prison of despair, wondering, what have I given my life for? Is this guy even the guy? Can I trust him? He was in the dungeon in the dark, and he had a question. Like I said, we also have doubts and discouragements. Um, in fact, I would ask you this question. What is it that causes you to doubt? I think it's normal for every Christian to go through seasons of doubt, questioning, and struggle and say, is this really real? Maybe it's sickness that you've gone through, cancer, something that just won't go away. Maybe a broken marriage, broken family, lost job, lost house. Any number of experiences can lead you to ask these questions and even to doubt and say, I'm not sure this is really real. You know, if I think through my experience, what, what has caused me to doubt in all the years of my life? I mean, there's a few things I could point to, and usually they're difficult seasons, right? And so difficult seasons such as when I lost my father. I lost a, a youth leader, actually, at one point was killed by a tractor. Um, that was a, a major time of questioning for me. But I think... One of the biggest times of questioning I had was actually when I had a, a dear friend, a strong Christian, um, who fell into sin, just terrible sin that was destroying him. And he had chance after chance to turn away from it, to turn back to Jesus. Um, and, and it seemed like to me the most ideal of circumstances. And instead, he kept running the opposite direction to his own peril. 
And that one really made me question, God, if, if, you, if he couldn't understand the message, I mean, he grew up like I did, he understands the truth, he knows the word, and if he can't even get the message, who will? And I think the way that Jesus answers this question helps us to, realize, to, to reason through this as well. So Jesus answers John the Baptist by saying, go back and tell him what you've seen, And what you've heard. In other words, what do you see and what do you hear? What are you focusing on? And what he tells John to focus on is focus your attention on Jesus, on the work of Jesus, on the deeds of Jesus, and on the words of Jesus. Focus on him. And you know, these these words are actually loaded. When you think about what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 11, uh, when he says... um, uh, go and tell them the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. He's actually referencing prophetic words that said, one day a Messiah, a promised person is going to come and do all these things. And so when he tells John, hey, this is what's happening, that's Jesus' way of saying the promises are coming true. So focus your attention on Jesus, on what he has done and what he will do. And so the question is, how do you focus? How do you make yourself focus on these things? And I would give you two suggestions this morning. Uh, One is this. uh, Number one is worship. Okay, worship. I think like what we just did, that is one of the most powerful tools that God has given his people uh, to focus on him and what he's done. Worship in song, worship with your church family, but especially worship in song. Uh, think about the lyrics of the words uh, of the song that we sang earlier, Graves into Gardens. And again, I'm not going to sing this for you, okay? We already sang it together. Um, but think about the lyrics of that song. It says, you turn mourning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You're the only one who can. You turn graves into gardens. You turn bones into armies. You turn seas into highways. You're the only one who can. Oh, there's nothing that's better than you. There's nothing better than you. I think so many times worship helps us to focus our attention on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so I would encourage you, make worship a priority. Make worship gathering a priority. I think God knows what he's doing when he says, don't forsake the gathering of yourself together. Because it helps us to focus on him and then live our lives as a response to that. And that's really important when you're in a dark season. Um, hopefully when you come to worship with your church family, that's a moment of light uh, and, and revelation from God. And that's when you need it, is when you're in the dark. You've probably heard this quote before. Never doubt in the dark what God has showed you in the light. So I think Jesus is reminding John the Baptist of that. You know the words of the prophets. You know who I am and what I was promised to come and do. Don't doubt in the dark dungeon now what you know God has spoken in truth. So the question for the king, Jesus answers by saying, focus on me, focus on Jesus. So the first way to focus on him is um, is through worship. And then I would say one other suggestion to you is to help you focus on the king, to help you focus on the hope that you have. Uh, is to talk to a friend, okay? Simple friendship 
I think is one of the best ways that God has to encourage us to focus on Him. We saw that in Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, the friend's actually, actually the friend's name was Hope or Hopeful. Um, and that person gave Christian hope as he encouraged him with words from scripture, uh, and encouraged him even in the midst of the darkness. In fact, reminded Christian of truths he had forgotten, and Christian realized he had the key to get out of the dungeon. So don't undervalue or underestimate the value of a good, strong Christian friend. So I would just encourage you, build those kind of friendships. Be that kind of a friend to others. It's our way that we can focus our attention on Jesus. When you can't remember what Jesus has done or you're not thinking about what Jesus has said, have people around you who can remind you of that. Christian community, that's what we're talking about. So John the Baptist has this question for the king. He says, are you the one? Jesus says, focus on what you hear, focus on what you see. I am the one. I'm the promised one. And that brings us to the next thing that Jesus says, and that is an explanation from the king. So Jesus explains to us in these next verses um, a little more. In other words, he gives us the big picture of what's going on here. Not just this little setting with John getting out of prison, but Jesus says, I've got something bigger going on here. Let me tell you about it. So let's read these verses together. Verses 7 through 15 says this. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So these are Jesus' words. And, and basically that last little saying there where he says, he who has ears to hear, he's saying, hey, don't miss this. This is really, really important. So let's go back and look at what was he saying that's so important. What's this explanation that he gives to the crowd or to us? And I think it's, like I said, it's that big picture. Did you notice at the beginning of those verses, Jesus asked the people three questions? Uh, and they're really rhetorical questions. He says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? And then he goes right on into the next question. You can almost hear the crowd laughing or saying, no, no, we didn't go out to see a reed shaken by the wind. In other words, John was not a wishy-washy, shaky, frail person. He was a strong person with a strong message. And everyone knew exactly what he was about. And that was telling people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn to turn away from your sins and turn to this Messiah who is coming. So no, you didn't go out there to see a wade that a reed that's blowing around in the wind. What else? What's the second question? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing or fine clothing? 
No, the answer is no. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. John the Baptist made a huge point out of showing that he was not materialistic. He was not concerned with all the possessions and things of the world. What did he wear? Camel hair. One of the most uncomfortable substances known to man, probably. Uh, He was not concerned with getting the finest things for himself. That's not who he was. People weren't going to hear him because he was attractive, uh, because he wore the finest clothes, or because he looked like anything that's usually considered respectable. They went to hear his message. And that's exactly what Jesus says. What then did you go out to hear? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and much more than a prophet. So Jesus says, you went out because you recognized that this was a messenger from God. Really, prophet literally means messenger. And so uh, he was a messenger from God, and they recognized that. That's why they went out by the thousands to see him, to be baptized in the Jordan River, to repent and turn from their sins. He was a prophet. In fact, Probably, Jesus says, the greatest prophet in the long line of prophets. Something much greater than all the others. What's Jesus getting at here? I think he's reminding the people that God fulfills his promises. If you're in the book of Matthew, in your Bible, flip back about ten pages to the last book in the Old Testament. Okay, Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. So it's the, ver- it's the book that comes right before Matthew. Um, in between the two books, incidentally, between Malachi and Matthew, we have 400 years where God didn't speak. We call that the 400 years of silence. And people were waiting for the arrival of this promised person, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They were waiting for him. But guess what? In Malachi 3, verse 1, we're told that somebody is going to come before Jesus comes. In fact, this messenger, one more prophet, if you will, is going to come before Jesus arrives. It says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So when Matthew quotes these verses, or Jesus quotes these verses and says, This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is saying, John the Baptist was the exact fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. Back in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Jesus is saying, John the Baptist is that guy. If you can accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. In other words, those promises that God made at the very end of the Old Testament, they're coming true. God keeps his promises. God fulfills what he has promised. And you see that even in the life of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was one of the fulfillments of God's promises. That key person who came to announce, hey, the time is here. The king is coming. The king is arriving. Matter of fact, the king is right here. He fulfilled God's promises. First you have Malachi, then you have the fulfillment starting to happen in Matthew. But you see people like John the Baptist, and probably a lot of people during Jesus' day, even us, want the fulfillment that's spoken of in Revelation to happen immediately, right? And uh, So in other words, John the Baptist was saying, 
I wish that Jesus would come and wipe out these Romans, get rid of Herod, set me free from prison. Isn't he the guy who came to save us? And Jesus says, I came to save you, but it's from your sins. And one day, all those promises I've made will come true. See, the promises made in Malachi and throughout the Old Testament begin to come through, come true in Matthew. And one day, they will all come true when Revelation is fulfilled and the rest of the promises. You see, God keeps his promises. Jesus is the king who was predicted by John and by all the law and prophets. And one day we know he will make all things new. All the suffering, the imprisonments, the persecutions, the disease, the broken families, all of those things will be healed one day. But not yet. And so Jesus tells the people, he explains to the crowd that this right here with John the Baptist is a little piece, a major piece, but a little piece of the big picture. And he leaves us believing there is more yet to come. There's more yet to come. You know, when Jesus explains these things, you might think, well, okay, if he explained that to me and I saw him heal that lame guy and give sight to the blind guys, uh, I would say, yeah, I believe. But that's not exactly what happens. In fact, the last section of our text today is a section that talks about rejection, the rejection of the king. It kind of seems surprising in light of everything we've just talked about, everything these people have seen and heard. Um, and yet, Jesus says, some will reject me. Even those who saw Jesus and heard him firsthand. Listen to these verses, Matthew eleven sixteen through 24. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds." You know, this first part of that last section is, is basically Jesus saying, you gotta realize that people are rejecting me even though they've heard this message. In fact, he says it's basically like, we, you heard the good news and the bad news, right? John the Baptist gave you the bad news. John the Baptist said, you all are sinners. You are condemned to judgment. You better repent and turn to God now because the king is almost here and he's gonna judge you. That's kind of bad news, right? Sounds like bad news, although John did give them hope. And they said, no. We don't want to, we don't really want that. So then Jesus comes and says, it's time to celebrate. The king is here. In fact, he's partying, he's eating and drinking with them, with the sinners, trying to draw them to repentance. And the people say, no, we don't really want that either. So the good news that the king is here, he's arrived. They turn their back on that as well. It's not exactly what we're looking for. You can almost hear them saying that. Kind of reminds me of another thing we see in November, right? Uh, Black Friday shopping, right? And this is, this is interesting now that so much of it's online. You can spend hours scrolling through. You're like, okay, I need for my kitchen this appliance. And you can spend the next two hours scrolling through a hundred or a thousand appliances. And at the end of it, you're like, I'm still not sure which one I'm supposed to get. There's so many options. 
And we keep looking and looking and looking for the perfect product. And I actually think this is what's happening in Jesus' day, and it's happening in our day too. When it comes to religion, more importantly to, to faith, it's like shopping. There's so many options. People are like, I'll just keep looking. I'm going to wait till I find the exact fit uh, for what I want. No, that one's not quite right. I'll swipe to the next one. There's plenty of options, right? Plenty of religions, plenty of, uh, of different ways that people can pursue meaning in the universe. But here's the deal. There's only one right choice. Only one thing that will actually satisfy people. And that is the king the Messiah, God himself, who came to earth to save us. Faith in the one who saves you. That's what Jesus says. Trust me to save you. Don't pursue all these other options, these religious things, all these things that you think might be able to save you. There's only one thing, one person that can save you. His name is Jesus. He's our king. Place your faith in the one who will save you. Don't reject this. So the next couple verses, the last verses in our passage, talk about the people who do reject this. Verses 20 through 24 says this, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. See, there's three villages that Jesus mentions here uh, in these verses. And, you know, we hear those names and we're like, I kind of, I've heard them in the Bible, but let me show you a picture of these. Maybe this will help it kind of hit home for us. Okay. I circled the three towns. They're all on the North shore of the sea of Galilee. Okay. So these small little towns, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. Just like when we say the north shore of Lake Pontchartrain is Mandeville, Slidell, Covington, that's the north shore. So these three towns, why does Jesus single them out? It's because most of his miracles up to this point had occurred in those towns where he had healed people, he had preached his messages. In fact, he even singles out Capernaum above the other three, other two. Why? Because five of his miracles in chapters 8 and 9 actually occur in the city of Capernaum, five that we know about. So Jesus has done so much work in this area, and yet they choose to reject him. They received immediate, straightforward, direct revelation, direct teaching from Jesus himself, and yet they turn their back on him. They say, you know, we didn't really like that John guy, but we really don't like this Jesus guy either. Even though John said he was the one. And as Jesus says, rejection of the king has consequences. Those who choose to reject the Messiah will suffer judgment. And the thing that's interesting about that whole thing with those cities on the North Shore, if you will, is that they were very religious people. 
And yet religion, what we find in Matthew, is religion sometimes has a way of blinding people. Because you think you're going through all the right motions, going to church on Sunday, saying all the right prayers, doing all the right things. A system of doing is what religion is. Jesus says that's not the way to be saved. The only way to be saved is to know and trust him, to have a relationship with him. Religion has a way of blinding people. And if you're sitting here this morning saying, I'm not blinded by my religion. I don't think I'm blinded by it. Take a step back and just ask. Ask yourself, who am I trusting? Am I trusting myself? Am I trusting those around me? Or am I trusting the King, the Messiah? Because see, Jesus says, I don't want you to think you're okay when you're not okay. That's what the people in, in Capernaum were doing. Rejecting the king has consequences. You know, what we're going to find next week, this chapter actually ends with an invitation, not with the message of judgment. But we're going to leave that for next week. But know this, Jesus says, rejecting me has consequences. But he also has told us all throughout Matthew, if you embrace me, if you trust me, if you have faith in me, you will be saved. You can have a relationship with me. See, Jesus' answer to John here today was focus on the Savior. Look to him. He's the only one who can save you. He's the one you can trust. He's the one you can worship. That's the good news about Jesus. He's the fulfillment of all the things that God has ever promised to do for his people. And for that, we trust him and we worship him. That's good news. That's the news that you should never doubt in the darkness. No matter how dark the darkness gets, Jesus will be there with you. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here with us this morning. God, I thank you that you are with each one of your children when we go through difficulty. Uh, Lord, I just thank you for this reminder from the life of John the Baptist through your word here in Matthew. Uh, God, I praise you for it. Help us to remember these lessons. And uh, God, as we go out from here, I pray that you would help us to share this good news with those around us. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Now go and make disciples.